Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tillier with you, joined by Katrina Blowers. And Katrina, you've got a briefing in this episode about Nike bikies. Yeah, so this is all part of a new breed of bikie in Australia. And police around the country say they're behind the gangland warfare that we're seeing exploding on the streets of our capital cities right now. You've seen the just recently former head of the Comanchero wearing um, designer dressing gowns in the club colours. We're hearing stories of club presidents driving $750,000 Lamborghinis. This is what we call the Nike bikies, and that's a term that started in the 2000s because, as some bikies would say, these guys would rather wear Nikes than motorcycle boots. Yeah, so bikies, but not as we've known them before. So I'm going to be taking a look at this new look, bikie war, that's happening in Australia, what police are doing, I guess what can they do right now to try and curb the rise of violence as they battle over the lucrative cocaine market? Wow, that's going to be so interesting. That's in the second half of the briefing. First, here are today's headlines. It's Monday, August 7. Well, the big story here in my home state of Queensland is the tragic family fire on Russell Island. Police have now recovered the bodies of a father and his five young sons. They all died in a house fire on the island. That's just south of Brisbane. Uh, That happened early yesterday morning. We are providing support for the community. This is truly tragic. These are young men, uh, young boys that could have become men into the future. Yeah, so heartbreaking. Uh, That was Queensland Police Superintendent Matt Kelly. The fire broke out just after 6am yesterday. The dad actually ran back into the flames in the house to try and save his sons. Uh, the mum was stopped from running back in. Police named her as Samantha Stevenson and their father as Wayne Godinay. The boys were all aged between 2 and 11. And Tom, mm. um, tough day for that tiny community. Everyone literally knows everyone there uh, and they're providing counselling and also fundraising. Um, the mum is still in hospital at this wow. stage. What a horrifying scene. And is there anything known about how or why it happened? Yeah, the only thing that they do know is that it was an old wooden Queenslander. So the speed of the fire as it took hold, it, you know, it just became impossible to, to get out. But they don't yet know why the fire started in the first place. And big news on the Bruce Learman investigation in the ACT. So last week we reported on the leaked Sovereignoff report into the handling of the case. And it made damning findings about the conduct of the ACT Chief Prosecutor Shane Drumgold. So over the weekend, he resigned. The report itself will be released in full by the ACT government this week. And in his statement, Shane Drumgold, the former Chief Prosecutor of the DPP in the ACT, said... While I acknowledge my mistakes, I strongly dispute that I engaged in deliberate or underhanded conduct in the trial or that I was dishonest. What a turnaround, hey? Mm. Because initially, I guess, Shane Drumgold was the one who called for this inquiry and in the end, he has not come out of it looking very flush at all. Yeah, so he thought there was political interference trying to stop this trial going ahead. So that turned out not to be true at all. And the most damning findings, as you say, from the retired judge, Walter Sovranoff, King's Counsel, were about Drumgold himself. So he's been um, the casualty um, as a result of this. And also, 
Bruce Learman says he's now intending to sue the ACT government for flaws in the prosecution. And a lot of those flaws have been brought to light by this inquiry. Yeah, the other thing about this is that uh, it could mean that all of Shane Drumgold's previous cases could be scrutinised. So, my goodness, this could go on for some time. Anthony Albanese says he won't back down on pushing for an Indigenous voice to Parliament despite polls showing the yes case is in trouble. A Redbridge poll conducted for News Corp found the no vote is running ahead of yes at 56% to 44% nationally. Uh, Queensland is the state where the no campaign is the strongest and the yes is the weakest. Speaking to the ABC at the annual Gama Festival in northeast Arnhem Land, Albanese said... He's not going to back away from constitutional recognition in the form of a voice to Parliament. They want constitutional recognition, they want a voice, and they want it so that they can get better outcomes on education and health and housing. So, Tom, we still don't have a date mm. that could be announced um, in coming weeks, the date for that referendum. It's understood the Prime Minister's going to keep in mind the wet season in the Northern Territory, mm. so there's talk it could even be November now. Yeah, well, he'll obviously push it out beyond the footy grand finals and try and find a bit of space in there. You'd imagine potentially before the Melbourne Cup. Um, as we just heard, he's at the Gama Festival in northeast Arnhem Land. That's a really special festival. Um, my dad's actually there at the moment, and I've been to it before. Um, a lot of political leaders go there to meet the local um, Yungal people and take part in their culture. And it's often a place where big political speeches are made as well. So. This year, again, it was all about The Voice. Last year, it was um, Anthony Albanese talking about The Voice as well. Um, so, you know, you get a very, very supportive crowd for this kind of agenda mm. there, and they've just got to take that energy and bring it out to the rest of the community, which is just proving so difficult. And Victoria police are investigating the deaths of three people after they consumed toxic wild mushrooms at a lunch with friends. So this doesn't sound like a crazy bunch of kids trying to get high. This is two couples in their 60s and 70s eating wild mushrooms last weekend at a lunch. They were taken to hospital the next day. Three of them died and a fourth is still fighting for their lives. Yeah, the Victorian government even released a warning back in April because it had been, there'd been a lot of, you know, cool and wet conditions, which apparently mushrooms love. And there'd been a bit of a spike in toxic mushrooms being found in the wild. Um, apparently all you need is a piece, the equivalent size of a 10 cent piece mm. to kill you of some of these varieties. Wow. And they can be really confusing. Some of them can look like safe mushrooms, but they're not. And mushroom experts say you, you're just playing, you know, Russian roulette if you're trying to go out there collecting these yourself and you don't know too much about it. And big news at the FIFA Women's World Cup overnight. The USA, who many considered to be tournament favourites, have been knocked out mm. by Sweden in a penalty shootout. Oh, and tonight, big, big, big night. The mm. Matildas continue their World Cup journey when they meet Denmark at Sydney's Accor Stadium. And great news, Sam Kerr is going to play. She confirmed it yesterday while walking with the team. So this is how kind of wild it's gotten. There have been closed training sessions with Sam, so we haven't really known, you know, how good she is, how good her calf is. But yesterday they had an open training session as well, and there was even a helicopter hovering overhead, mm. um, presumably trying to get a glimpse or get some shots of her. Um, but she pretty much just stuck to training.
training on the bike. Yeah, wow. There's so much excitement and anticipation, isn't there? And, you know, the TV ratings were over 2 million for their last game. Imagine where it's going to be at tonight. It's just amazing. This tournament is going so well. Um, the crowd figures are a really impressive well, particularly for the games where the Australian team isn't playing. So the average crowd yeah. is 30,000 people, which is just massive. So you've had these games um, of these teams with, you know, lots of supporters here of, there's been 10 crowds of over 40,000. So they're really big numbers for a tournament like this. Oh, I just, you know, what a what a great sort of um, shot in the arm for women's sport and let's mm. just hope it can transfer across to other codes as well. All right, Tom, I'm about to get into this new breed of bikey believed to be behind these violent cocaine wars that are going on across Australia right now. In and around Sydney recently, there's been a murder attributed to bikey gangs, it seems, every other week. One of the most notable happened last month when cocaine kingpin Alan Moradian was executed by unknown gunmen in the basement car park of his Bondi Junction bachelor pad. Now, Moradian was linked to numerous crime groups, including the Comancheros and what's called the Commission, a consortium of criminals who seek to control the price and distribution of cocaine in Sydney. Now, the Commission is one of the new generation of bikey gangs, along with other names that have started popping up in the media, like God's Garbage and the Iron Horseman. Not only are they doing business differently to the old school bikies, they look and dress differently and they're not afraid to take their violent disputes into the open. Professor Mark Locks is from Queensland University of Technology School of Justice and he's been looking into the changing face of gang violence. Professor Locks, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Take us through the new landscape of Australian bikie gangs. Who are the major players right now? So the major players right now are the Comancheros. They would be the most successful club in Australia. It was the Rebels, but that started falling apart when their national president, Mr Vella, went home to Malta and then tried to come home. And I believe it was Peter Dutton said, well, we're not going to give you a visa to come home. So he's been there ever since. And that sort of created a, not necessarily a power vacuum, but you started to see things fall apart. They were always the largest club in Australia. And it doesn't appear that's the case anymore. And the common chair have thrown a whole lot of money at expansion and it looks like they're currently the largest we've got some new kids on the block talk us through those names that have started popping up in the media which i hadn't really heard of before say the last six to 12 months so what's really happened in australia we've gone from about 240 clubs to averaging between 36 and 42. So a whole lot of those little clubs progressively got absorbed or closed down from the 70s all the way through to as recently as the last decade. And we're settling down. But as that happened and the local clubs started to join together, coercively or persuasively, other foreign clubs have tried to come in. And they've tried that multiple times. So the two biggest are um, Setu Dara from Holland and the rock machine who I believe were pretty much in their third attempt to really set themselves up in Australia. Satu Dara and the rock machine have a very large international profile. Rock machine, especially because they're involved in what they call the Montreal Biker War. 
uh, with the Hells Angels. So whenever they try and set up in Australia, the police smash them as me immediately. So neither of them have been very successful. And the high profile they get when they show up means the local clubs smash them immediately if they ever try and set up in their local area. So in Australia, we're still sitting there with Hells Angels, Banditos, Comanchero, Rebels as our major players. The Mongols have grown and grown because they patched over a lot of the things but there were some hardcore things who refused to patch over and now we've seen clashes between the two of them obviously with some major murders associated with it without drawing any conclusions as to who was responsible there have certainly been some clashes between the original Finks and the nouveau Finks who turned into the mongols but the mongols have tried to expand nationally as well so is there a particular state in Australia where we're seeing more bikey gangs proliferate? Victoria is what we like to call the Switzerland at the moment because of the bikey laws in all the other states, not necessarily the territories. You know, you've really got a choice if you want to proliferate as a club, Victoria and the ACT, and, you know, it's not an unnatural decision that if you have to choose between Canberra and Melbourne, you're going to Melbourne. So Victoria's seen most of the attention but most of the violence is still happening around Sydney and the central coast of New South Wales. What are you noticing with the newer generation of bikies? Uh, I mean, I guess when we yeah. think of the stereotype of bikies, we think of, you know, the tats and the, the leather jackets and the leather vests. Does the new generation of bikie look like that anymore? Those guys are definitely still there. So they're what we call the conservative bikies, the riding, drinking, fighting bikie from the original bikies in the early 60s. They still exist, and they're probably still the vast majority of bikies in Australia. The other group, the ones who've actually moved into making money, that we call the radicals because they're basically taking up this organisation and using it as a profit-making venture, and obviously some of that involves organised crime. With the rise of money, we've also seen a change in culture in Australia, and this is Australia. It's not anywhere else in the world. You will not see – you'll see the occasional individual who'll dress up and look very flash with gold chains and funky haircuts and really good clothes and Versace and things like that, but it's an Australian phenomenon. You've seen the, the just recently former – head of the Comanchero wearing um, designer dressing gowns in the club colours, was hearing stories of club presidents driving $750,000 Lamborghinis. This is what we call the Nike bikies, and that's a term that started in the 2000s because, as some bikies would say, these guys would rather wear Nikes than motorcycle boots. So it's a generational change. It's a specifically Australian change. It began before the involvement of the serious organised crime money, but the money flowing into the clubs, and I'll just note again, as I always do, 90% of club members have nothing to do with organised crime and 90% of most club members have, don't even have a traffic offence. That money has seen a change in the way bikies in some clubs look, but you can find entire clubs that look exactly like they were riding around in the 70s still. So it's not everybody but those who've, been, who've taken it up have really moved into it. When it comes to outlaw motorcycle gangs, particularly the top ones, what are the main revenue streams? This is one of the great mysteries. What the police have told me is the management of most of the clubs just take the membership fees from members. And if you're able to provide the club with more money, no questions are going to be asked about where it came from. 
What we never used to see was the senior management of clubs being involved in major organised crime. But if you go back through, say, half a dozen of those 40 clubs over the last 15 to 20 years, we're increasingly seeing club presidents, even national presidents, being arrested for direct involvement in organised crime. And club presidents and some former club presidents, and I'm not going to name club names over the air, but actually having to flee the country to avoid the attention of the Australian Federal Police because of their serious involvement in major drug trafficking. So that is a big change. But once again, it's not every club. So it's a it really focusing on, say, four to five clubs and the others, um, we're not seeing that change. We'll still see the occasional club member from a club who is involved in a major drug operation and they're arrested, but then the rest of the club doesn't appear in the court records or the press for a decade. So it's not obviously not an ongoing club operation, but then you'll see other clubs who are continually appearing, who are continually seeing arrests. But even then, we're talking about a core group of five to 10% of the club who are doing all the offending. And those guys in the study I did in Queensland, they were offending five times the rate of the average criminal. So, you know, we're, we're, they're, they're giving a bad image to the bikies, if you like. They're getting the police attention. The police attention is necessary and they are committing the crimes and they're clearly getting arrested for them quite successfully. I think it's the Australian police system is working really well post the arrival of the bikey legislation, not necessarily because of those that legislation, but they've got their act together. But we're seeing senior members go to jail now, and that didn't happen in the past. So for those bikies, and, and you know, we are talking about um, those bikies that are outlaw motorcycle, part yeah. of outlaw motorcycle gangs, how much do they control the price and distribution of drugs in Australia? Is it now run by those bikies or are there other people involved as well? So the rumour, um, which is close to impossible to prove, is that a certain group of bikies have set up a thing they call the Commission and they're trying to control the price of cocaine in Sydney. Now, Sydney depending on the figures, is like a $3 billion cocaine market per year. So they want to maintain the really high prices they obtained during COVID and they want to enforce that on everybody. And the rumours we're hearing up here in Queensland are that they want to enforce it on the Gold Coast as well because the three big cocaine markets are the Gold Coast, Sydney, and then it jumps between Canberra and Melbourne as the other big markets. But the, the number one and two are normally Gold Coast and Sydney. So clearly, if you're selling in Sydney, you also want to sell in the other major markets. And if you're trying to control the price in Sydney, you would want to control the price in the other markets as well to maintain your profits. Yeah, wow. All right. So where to from here for police, particularly in, in those southern states of Victoria and, and New South Wales, where, I mean, I know it's difficult to join the dots conclusively yeah. and say that some of the public murders that we've seen recently can be linked to bikies, but yep. it certainly looks that way. How, how do police get on top of this? So you've still got the two different lifestyles happening, that radical lifestyle of murders and the conservatives who are still doing their inter-club warfare. And it's actually called 
the American authors called the war mentality. That's always existed. You know, we're going to fight over territory, and that's why we went from 240 clubs down to 40. It's a continual battle for becoming the dominant club in an area. That is going on parallel to the organised crime and, and pretty much separate to it. I've done work where you can see a series of shootings that are entirely about two clubs fighting over territory and have nothing to do with drugs and none of the people involved in the fight have anything to do with organised crime. But in the same town, on another side of town, there are attacks and murders that are entirely to do with drug networks but involve outlaw motorcycle gang members. So there's the indicators to look for are bikies involved in organised crime offend with non-bikies. Bikies involved in club warfare exclusively offend with other club members or club associates. The other indicator to watch out for, and this is a definitive, but it's pretty accurate, is old school bikey warfare, the conservative bikey warfare, is so similar to literally, you know, central highlands of Papua New Guinea. It's all bravado, it's all showing off, it's all male dominance, it's all being a hero. And that's where you see drive-bys, that's where you see firebombings. Nobody's actually setting out to kill anybody, but people do die, but it, there's no intent to go and murder people in other clubs, usually. Where you see something like the Mick Howie murder, where someone runs up, shoots multiple times into his head, that almost exclusively is bikies involved in organised crime. So they're the things to look for. Intentional assassination tends to involve organised crime and the more drive-by culture is old-school bikey behaviour. And there are exceptions to those rules. But the two types of battles are going on parallel to each other. That was Professor Mark Locks from Queensland University of Technology's School of Justice, and he's doing some fascinating research into Australian bikey gang culture. Um, one of his students is also doing research into how women are changing their roles in bikey gangs too. So a really interesting space that we're going to continue to look at. Listener.